scripture reading comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 46, verses 1 through 4. Book of Genesis, chapter 46, verses 1 through 4. If you please rise with me for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifice to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, everybody. It's good to see you all. I just wanted to share that uh, if you came in, you should have gotten a wedding invite. That's to my wedding. <laughs> so, so please come. <laughs> I really wanted to, uh, yeah, have everyone come. My fiance um, pressed, folded, and tied and glued each one of those invites. Uh, and then she told me that she was crying because her hands hurt so much. But I was in Japan enjoying myself, so I don't know what to say. I was like, oh. Uh, but I hope you appreciate that invitation. Um, so if you haven't gotten one, please, on your way out, take the invitation uh, with you. And just know that there's tears on it, at least some of them. The wedding is on July... 15th on Saturday at 6 p.m. here in our church, but I really want to emphasize that I personally want everybody in this church to attend. You guys are my VIP, so please do come and enjoy the festivities, and um, <clears throat> I hope that you get to stand in line for the food first before it runs out. No, it won't run out. We're praying for Jesus, the five loaf fish miracle <laughs> for the wedding too. Um, one thing that I didn't, we didn't mention uh, in the bulletin, but it is in the back of the calendar, is we are having for the first time a UK vision trip. We're going to Manchester, uh, meet with Ben Jack, and do some ministry with him. He's associated with a group called The Message, and they do a lot of things. They reach out to schools, they reach out to jails. Uh, they do this incarnational ministry where if there's subsidized or government housing, they send missionaries to actually live there and be part of that housing complex. So they're incarnational ministry. So they do all these things. And so myself, uh, we have an elder and deacon, Juven and Hannah going with me. The three of us, we are going to go. And we call it a vision trip is because we really want to see how we can partner with them and see how we can help them and see if we, could, if we have any future. Uh, we hope we do. And so please keep us in prayer. We're leaving Wednesday, and it's going to be about a week and a half. So I won't see you next week, and neither will my fiance for another week and a half, but yeah, she knows what she's getting into. Okay, um, 
I'm just kidding. I, I'm already in, like in the doghouse. It's like, oh, the wedding's a month away. You're not here for three of those four weeks? Okay, great. It's like, hmm, thank you for your support. But uh, there is one more announcement I want to say. It's that we as a church, we partner with our Korean ministry because we want to have not just a symbiotic relationship, but we want to have this relationship that's truly like a mother-daughter, uh, parent and child. We want to support them, and they are supporting us. Believe me, they are supporting us. And so one of the ways we can support them is by signing up and volunteering, as we've seen in the bulletin, to be one of the youth teachers. They actually need youth teachers uh, for both junior high and senior high. We had very good-looking pastors give uh, the announcement a few weeks ago, but they still need youth pastors. Uh, this is where I first started um, right after college. I became a youth teacher, I think, for about 10 years before I went into uh, full-time ministry. And I really would say that those being a youth teacher is probably one of the most important things you can do because they are in their most formative years where they're questioning and learning. They have all these ridiculous questions, but if you don't answer them, if no one's there to answer them, then who gets to answer them? That's right, the internet, and it's just no good, right? So you get to be there, be their mentor, um, and really be a part of their spiritual journey and so I, I would say, if you haven't tried it, please do. It's really great that we can do it. And plus, two of our members here are already pastors in the youth group. We have our intern pastor, Chun Suk, and we have our uh, youth pastor, Sam, who just spoke before. Uh, he, he said he didn't cry because he cried all the time. Uh, throughout, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just getting you back. Uh, but... but <laughs> But they are wonderful pastors. We also have an uh, awesome pastor, Pastor Sean, who's a senior high pastor, so go talk to them. If you don't know them and it's just awkward, but you have a heart for the youth, uh, then come talk to me, and I will hook you up with them. So please do. Youth group is awesome. And mind you, most of you were youth group students in our church who ended up in CGS. So please remember that and think of that. It's because of the teachers that invested in you, prayed for you, poured out their lives, money, time, energy, uh, that really did affect your faith, did it not? So please remember that. We are continuing on with Genesis, and we are now on chapter 46. Chapter 46 is the third part of this climactic mountain that I was talking about. First, we started with repentance, if you don't have repentance, you're not climbing, right? So you needed repentance, and we saw Judah give this amazing, amazing speech that was chock full of repentance, but it was deep, it was profound, but it was heartfelt and honest. And we see from that repentance, we hit that climax, that peak, which was reconciliation. And from reconciliation today, we go to restoration. Why are you so angry? No, seriously, why are you so angry? Why are you so dissatisfied? Why is everything that's happening some slight to you personally? 
Why is it so hard to move on or move past certain things? I find this true more and more as not just as I pastor, but as I walk through life. Um, people are just getting angrier and angrier. It could be the littlest thing. How dare she do that? How dare he do that? Who does he think he is? It's so unfair, isn't it? You do a little bit, a little more at work, and someone may do a little bit less, and it could be they might output maybe 95 units or whatever, and you output 96. Why are you so angry that you outputted one more unit and this person 95? Restoration is one of the key elements and promises and doctrines that we have in the Christian faith is what we are going toward to and that we have to believe. Because if we don't think there's restoration on the other side of this, then you can't. My question to you, why, 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 before, isn't answered because it can't be answered. But if there's restoration on the other side, then perhaps we can begin answering the questions that need to be answered. Some odd years ago, an angry man, I want to ask him if I saw him, why are you so angry, bro? But an angry man rushed through the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam until he reached Rembrandt's famous painting, Night Watch. Then he took out a knife and slashed it repeatedly before he could be stopped. A short time later after that, a distraught, hostile man slipped into St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome and with a hammer began to smash Michelangelo's beautiful sculpture, the Pieta. The two cherished works of art were severely damaged. But what did the officials do? Did they throw him out? Did they forget about it? Of course not, and absolutely not. Using the best experts they had who worked with the most utmost care and precision, they made every effort to restore the priceless treasures. You know what anger does and bitterness does? It leaves destruction in our wake. I can ask why, but what has happened is there's already a path of destruction that we left behind us. That's why I want to emphasize one more time, repentance is key. We have to realize we cannot do this on our own and that we have to turn from our ways of bitterness and anger before it eats us alive. And the number two is when we repent, you actually turn around. And when you turn around, you not face the things of the world, but you face the Lord. And when you repent, what you are saying is now I get to be reconciled. And restoration is now finally taking that step, drawing closer to him. There are three elements that we can see here in this very short passage, but it's rich, it's profound, it's deep, and it's life-giving, and it is truth. The three elements is, number one, keep close to God. Number two, remember his promises. And number three, move. Keep close to God, remember his promises, and move. 
Jacob needed to make a big decision. After they reconciled, after Joseph and his brothers reconciled, they came back and they reported to Jacob all the things that happened. Do you know that your son is still alive and he is ruler of Egypt? You can tell they were reconciled because no more are they jealous. You know, there's always this competition between peers in the workplace, sometimes even in the church, you know. Why is he a deacon? Why is he an elder? Why is she a deacon? Why is she an elder? And then you compare. There's all these compare. And then that's where you start fighting because you're better than that person, right? You're better than that person. But the brothers weren't like that. They were so happy for Joseph. And they were happy to report to Jacob, Joseph, your son is alive and he's doing amazing. He is successful beyond what you can even imagine. And Jacob needed to make this big decision, and we go to chapter 46, with the big decision in front of him. And what did he do? And that is my first point, keep close to God. Keep close to God is part of a statement that Joseph Elliot made. It's keep close to God, and then you need fear nothing. Keep close to God, and then you need fear nothing. And he stopped by in Beersheba. Why Beersheba? Why Beersheba? In chapter 21, we saw that Abraham went to Beersheba, called upon the name of the Lord, verse 33. In chapter 26, the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, I am the God of your father Abraham, fear not, and I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. Now we go here, and you see that Jacob, before he makes this big decision, calling upon the name of the Lord. Before a big decision, I always give this advice, especially when college students ask me, I have this big decision in front of me, what should I do? And I say, you have at least three things that you need to go through. And number one is, do you have a conviction for it? And do you believe that God gave you that conviction? And many of you college students know exactly what I'm talking about because I said it to you. But number one is, do you have a God-given conviction? Do you believe you have a God-given conviction? Number two, is it in line with scripture? That means, does the Bible say anything about what you're about to do? And number three is, did you pass it through the body of believers or the church? This is essentially what Jacob does because what he does is he goes to church. The gathering of his people are important. You want to keep close to God, then you go to a house of worship. Why Beersheba is time and time again, place is important. You can't just say place has no significance at all. And then when you live in a house for 10 years and you're about to move out, a little tear comes down. Places have significance. And this place especially had a significance for the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they called upon the name of the Lord in this place. But here's the thing. Even though that this was significant. Mind you, Beersheba isn't just any place. It was the beginning of the place. It was the mouthpiece. It was the start of the promised land, Canaan, which God had promised Abraham. This is the entrance. This is the front gate. 
But mind you, God here says, as our deacon Hoyong read, God says, go, move. So sometimes, even though Beersheba is incredibly important, God tells us to move out. And we see later on, it is because that, that this really points to Jesus, him being the true temple. And there's not one specific physical location, as important as it is, but ultimately it's, do we have Jesus? Number two is remember his promises. When God talks to Jacob, he starts off by saying, don't be afraid. You know, it'd be awkward if we just passed by this statement, not explaining it. Just like it would be awkward if I just went to someone and introduced myself, hello, my name is Eugene, don't be afraid. Why would you say that? Why would you start a conversation off with, don't be afraid? Wouldn't it be because he was afraid? <laughs> if you meet the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God of all creation, and he comes upon you in a vision and a night, then yeah, I bet there's some fear. But he starts off by saying, don't be afraid. But not only that, don't be afraid, but don't be afraid of what's ahead of you. Don't be afraid of what you have to go through. Because now what Jacob is going to do is he has to pack up everything and leave. All the things that he remembered, he has to up and go. All the places, all the times where he spent a time here, there's a memory here, a time here, there's a memory here. He's going to pack up his family and go. And God says to him, don't be afraid. Is it because God will eliminate all obstacles? And the answer is no. God won't just go and be like, go down and Egypt is just going to be rubble. And then you can just walk in and I'm going to make it look exactly like Beersheba. Don't worry. It wasn't like that. But God says, don't be afraid because I will go down with you. The valley isn't eradicated. In fact, the valley is still as dark as it is. Your workplace is still as dark as it is. Your family situation could still be as dark as it is. Many times it is. You can receive and be blessed, but when you go back, you're like, it's the same thing. But what God promises isn't the eradication of circumstance or obstacle, but that God himself will be with us, that he will go down to the valley with us. Eternity is secure, but the temporal situation may still be the same. God may not take away the pain, but he assures us that he will be with us and protect us and we will prosper in spite of it. You know why this is important? You know why we have to hold on to the promise? It's because we have to remember who gives the promise. You know, if someone who continues to break promises after promise gives you a promise, how, how believable is he? How much will you put your weight and move your schedule around for that person? I think every, it, it's, it's interesting, but I think every single person here knows at least one person who calls because you, they're supposed to come to the meeting by, let's say, 11, 
And they call us like, oh, I'm so sorry, bro. I'm like five minutes away. And it's like already 11.10. And then you're thinking, you definitely just woke up. You're not five minutes away. And then he comes like, or she comes like 30 minutes later. I almost, I don't know, maybe it's just me. I'm surrounding myself with these guys. But um, if that person makes a promise to me saying, I promise I will be there at 11. And time and time again, that promise is broken. A person's always late. A person never wakes up on time, sleeps for like 16 hours. I'm not talking about anybody specific here. But that person does that, and that person makes that promise. How, how inclined am I to believe that person? Not, not so inclined. In fact, I won't get my hopes up. I won't hold my breath. I'll say, oh, you're going to come at 11? Okay, I'll see you, and I'll just go on my way. But the promise is significant. And the quality of the promise is heavy depending on who gives the promise. Who gives the promise? Who is the one making the promise? And is he mighty to keep that promise? And we see here when Jacob hears it, he remembers that God is the one that protected him even before he went to Haran because he was trying to escape his brother Esau from him getting killed. God is the one that protected him all the way back from Haran, back to Beersheba, back to his homeland. God is the one that constantly protected him. And he remembers, this is the promise I've been given. For God's people, God gives a promise. And he gives us today a promise too. We ought to remember the one who makes the quality of the one who makes the promise. And the final point of the restoration is move or to obey his direction. It's to go. It's to remember that God does all the work and so all we have to do is go. To this a lot of people sometimes, let's just say a lot, but a, a quite a few number of us would respond and have responded, what do you mean God does all the work? Can I just sit there and do nothing and God's going to do it? And I would say no. It's like, well, that means I'm doing some work, aren't I? And I take it akin to, let's say you have to go on a roller coaster and the roller coaster is gonna do all the work. That's what I say. The roller coaster is gonna do all the work. All you have to do is sit on it. And then you respond, well, that means I gotta do some work. Well, I say, yeah, comparatively, perhaps, it's nothing, though. Compared to what God is doing, it's practically nothing. It's, it's our self-centered ego that needs to place ourselves on the main stage. Oh, look at me, God. I obeyed you. I sat on the roller coaster, didn't I do a great job? It's like a child saying, well, you couldn't have been so nice to me and do all these things for me if I wasn't born, so some of it was me, right? And you'd respond, hmm, let me talk to this person's parents first. <clears throat> God does the work. We are along in it for the ride, but we are to move with him, 
we are to sit on that roller coaster, but we have to remember all that work really is being done by God. God is the one that orchestrated everything and he remembers to keep his people in spite of all the times we try to sit on the roller coaster and take a sledgehammer and try to break that roller coaster. God is the one that comes back and fixes it and makes sure that it still runs for you. In the beginning, I did mention that uh, Joseph was taken away from Jacob. That love he had for Joseph was a little too much. It was a little overboard. It was a little idolatrous. And God, we saw, takes Joseph away. And Jacob is ruined. In fact, when Benjamin was almost about to be taken away, he even goes, you are going to bring my gray hairs down to the grave if you don't bring Benjamin back. But here something amazing happens. Something that I could never think to do or think to put in the equation. God gives him all these amazing things for restoration. But he ends with this. Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. And when, I, I, when I read that, it just blew me away. This is someone that abused that gift that overly loved, meaning he put Joseph into that idolatrous position and it was rightfully taken away because not only was that idolatrous kind of relationship with Joseph destroying his relationship with Joseph, but it destroyed his relationship with all of his brothers, his own sons, but most importantly, it destroyed his relationship with God. But when there's repentance, there's reconciliation, and you see God here restoring everything to Joseph. To me, that is amazing. That is undeserved. If I abuse a chainsaw, and I do all these horrible things to it, people take, will take the chainsaw away. What is amazing to me is if I ever get the chainsaw back. If I never get the chainsaw back, I will say, that was deserved. I shouldn't get the chainsaw back because I abused it. Chainsaw has a good use, but I didn't use it for good. I used it for bad. I used it for evil. But you see, God here gives back to Jacob, Joseph. What is incredible is the whole language of it. Joseph's hand shall close your eyes is you are going to die in peace and Joseph's going to be there to say bye. I don't know if you ever had a loved one pass away in front of you or you were there with them. When a loved one passes away, what you do is you do close their eyes uh, because otherwise it won't be closed. Uh, so you close their eyes and then what happens to the body is it immediately stiffens um, and if you have to adjust the body because you want a viewing and a funeral and if the body is, you know, if the person passes away in not a straight position, but maybe even slanted, um, the body stiffens. And so they can't straighten it up. Uh, it's, it's, or at least it's really difficult. And we, you want to be respectful, so you don't want people to be like, you know, yanking your loved one's body here and there just so they can make it straight. But to die in this manner really means that there is peace. You know, not war. 
is not over anguish or strife, but God is promising him this incredible, incredible restoration. What God first seemingly took away, you see here that God essentially gives back. He restores Jacob. The love for his son was not a bad thing. It was bad when it became obsessive and it was distorted and it harmed everyone. But God restores Joseph to Jacob. And here we start to see what we know to be the gospel. Our God is a God of restoration. N.T. Wright writes this, we tell the story of a God who does the two things which some of the time at least we all want and need. A God who completes what he has begun, a God who comes to the rescue of those who seems lost and enslaved in the world the way it is now. And what is it a restoration of? You know, if you've parked in this parking lot and you have a nice car, then you, you have this kind of fear. Not that I have any nice car. This is what I heard from other people. I don't have a nice car. Uh, but other people who have nice cars would share. Um, <clears throat> so one time I had this car in the parking lot and I hear this big thud. And this person just opened the door like as hard as she could and hit my car and the dent was huge. It was like a crater, like a meteor fell. That's what I felt. And it dented my car. And then three kids ran out, right? And then I was like, what are you doing, pastor? And she was like, oh my goodness, pastor, it's your car, I'm so sorry. I said, all right, you have three kids. All right, fine. And then, you know, and then every time, I I think every time I bring a car, uh, even the one I currently have, there's like these scratch marks. Someone probably backed out and hit the side of it, and the bumper has this mark, and you get dinged up. And I, re- I, th- I realized if you are with people, you're going to get dinged up. I don't know why God had to show me by, anyway, but um, <laughs> you're going to get dinged up. This is a, a good analogy for life. Anytime we brush up with people, we're going to get dinged up. And then what we do is we take it to the body shop and go, can you restore this? And we actually use the words, can you restore it? And when you go buy a used car, I don't know how many of us have an experience with used cars. You, buying a used car is so difficult. In fact, even mechanics won't want to help you buy a used car because they don't want to be culpable or responsible if you get a lemon. But one of the first things that I remember looking with my friends is uh, the paint job on the bumper on the side. We would feel it. And if the paint went a little over the bumper, then it's a repainted bumper. But these days, the paint jobs are so good, it's hard to tell, right? But those would be like some clear signs. And only if you experience buying used cars or had an experience buying a lemon, Hopefully not. Uh, Do you know all these little things? But you can say restore the car, but it's never fully restored. You cannot put it on your Carfax report, but that car is damaged. And once you fix up a car, it's never like new. It's never like new. There are all these things that we try to do, but it never comes out like new because it is not new. Every time you even get into even a minor accident, what you do is you shake the car frame and the car frame gets a little looser and you can't put it back together again. There are all these religions out there that are saying, we can put you back together and make you good as new. 
You're not good enough. We understand. There is no doubt about it. It doesn't matter what religion you, are, you incorporate yourself into. It's a belief system that you're not good enough. And even if there is, there is this like modern thinking and philosophy now that you are good enough, right? So they're saying, they're, they're, you have these Facebook videos out there like, oh, you're good enough. You just need to be aware of your goodness. That means you're not good enough because you're not aware of your goodness, bro. Stop saying that. So basically, you are not good enough, at least until you watch my video, and then you know you're good enough. But you're not good enough is the mantra of religions that are out there. But you have to do this to fix it. You are not good enough, but you have to do this to fix it. Jesus comes in, and he says, you are not good enough, but I am. Every other belief system out there is about receiving some kind of consolation because you cannot reconcile evil. It is a problem that you have to face. And while all we can think about is, we can call it restoration, but all we can think about is how to receive consolation, Jesus himself comes down and gives us restoration. What does this mean? That means God created all things. He created all things to be a specific order. He created harmony, yes, but he created them to be in a love relationship with him and with each other. And yes, we messed up. Creation is fallen. I don't think you need any evidence of that. You just turn on the TV. What was once perfect is far from it now, and we are left with broken relationships, with shattered dreams, and a fragmented world, physically and emotionally and spiritually. But God has the power to see his wonderful and beautiful vision for this world to its glorious end. He didn't leave it the way it was, and he has the power to undo everything that we have done to harm it. And to accomplish this, he came and he died for it. But death couldn't hold him. And three days later, he rose again. And one day, we believe, he will come back to usher in a restored Creation. Tim Keller writes this in his book, in his conclusion for the King's Cross. The gospel is the ultimate story that shows victory coming out of defeat, strength coming out of weakness, life coming out of death, rescue from abandonment. And because it is a true story, it gives us hope because we know that life is really like that. Jesus died and he actually rose again from the dead. And he goes, this could be your story. God made you to love him and one another, but he lost you. He came to get you back, but he took the cross to do it. By doing this, he was able to take every dark part of your life and turn it into good. And through Jesus, you are finally becoming more and more dazzling and beautiful, becoming your true self, who God made you to be, finally taking your seat at the eternal banquet. This is restoration. This is the good news. I get to love, and my love doesn't have an end. 
If we realize this, we see that the gospel is the only gospel. The gospel is the only true good news because we as people cannot be satisfied by a consolation prize. We as a people, people that are birthed to love, need to see love to eternity. That's who we are. I love somebody and somebody dies that love comes to an abrupt halt. That leaves a hole in my life. It doesn't matter what kind of relationship I had, if it's a 10 out of 10 or a five out of 10 or one out of 10, I was meant to have love with that person, especially like we heard before, even if it's your father. And death brings that to an abrupt stop. What Jesus does is incredible because he took and he took and he takes death out of the picture. Death has no more hold on those that hold onto Jesus. And so we see here, even in these four verses, that the restoration that God promises us is out of this world, is something that we couldn't have pictured or imagined because it didn't happen before. And then Jesus came and he showed us the true way. My friends, I want to encourage you. If you don't know the gospel, this is the good news. This is what Jesus came to do to fully restore you to who you were created to be, to live life in that way. And my friends and my brothers who are Christian, who are brothers and sisters, this is what we have to hope and hold on to. We are a church, yes, we are not perfect yet, but there is a time that's coming where we will be fully restored when Jesus comes again. So what do we do? We move toward that. That means I will continue to repent. I will continue to reconcile and know that God will continue to restore. That's why Paul admonishes his readers, fight the good fight. Stay in that race because the end is good. It's worth it. Do what you have to do. Sit on that seat. Don't get off. And God has an incredible, incredible plan for his church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this amazing uh, story of Jacob, of how you did something that was unthinkable to us. You restored back to Jacob his precious son, Joseph. And in the same way, we have all these things, these dreams, these relationships, the things around us that we desire also to be restored. And so, Lord God, we hear the message of hope and we turn our eyes to you. And our confession is, God, only you can do it. Lord, do it for us. Do it for your people and build your church. Let's take this time to pray and lift up our personal petitions, the things that we need restored to the Lord, remembering and holding on to the promise that he gave us. Let's pray.